technical stuff. When Yeshua did it, that he was basically in an amphitheater and they could hear for miles. When we lived in Santa Barbara, we built our house in this, this little 60 acre thing that the DEA picked up from a drug runner and got divided up into four parcels, so we each had like 15 acres, and it was in a valley. So I was up on one side, and the pump house was down a significant distance away, you know, down at the, at the river. And it was one of those places like Jesus must have been, because you could stand at my house, and you could hear the animals walking around at the pump house. That it was it was just the weirdest thing. If you know, if I went down there, I could talk to my wife just in a normal voice, and she's you know half a mile away up at the house. It's just one of those ways that the, you know the ground laid in such a way that I think that must be a few of those in in Israel. Okay, so we are finishing up um, from last week. So we're talking about. The Torah, and the, you know, we mistakenly call the law, and we're trying to go through a few of those things and get a sense of um, how, why it's not the law in the terms that we think of the word, why it's their instructions and guidelines. And um, if you live that way, your life would look like the life of a follower of the Lord. So we've been talking about a few of these things, and hopefully you're starting to see that uh, the way we tend to read them and view them in English is often has almost nothing to do with what it is the Lord is telling us. So last week we uh, started with Leviticus 19, I think, 19, about don't hold grudges and don't seek revenge and all that stuff. And we, you know, we can read all that and think of the think think the things that we think. And sometimes we we miss the point that the context of most of these is uh, is how we interact and treat and live with our brothers. It's it's not designed to apply to the rest of the world. The context is. Uh, you know, this this is how we would walk in the midst of Israel, or in the midst of our brothers, if we believed the things that the Lord was saying. And, and you know, the, the idea is we keep the instructions not to be saved, but because we are saved. And it's not a keeping the law like the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought was not a, a means to an end. It was a result of of our believing the Lord, basically. And these things are not designed for us to use to bludgeon our brothers. You know, oh, you're doing this, or you shouldn't do that, or I saw you do this, and you need to stop doing that. They're for us. And if we, we need to look at those things in terms of how are we acting, because the Lord is pretty clear, everybody's on their own on all this stuff. You know, we have to be a certain way, regardless of how anybody else is. And the idea is if we follow these commandments and instructions and statutes and judgments, we will act and be in a certain way. And then he says the, 
the people living next to you, and literally that would have been the Moabites and the uh, Ammonites and all these people, will see that, and it's something that they would want. So that's always been our uh, mission. You know, and we, again, we, we tend to read Matthew a little wrong sometimes. It says, you know, take... Uh, to Judea and Samaria and all the outermost places of the earth. Well, what are you supposed to take there? You know, oh, we're supposed to take the gospel and we're supposed to beat the natives over the head with it. And that's not so much what it says. It's we are supposed to be these people of God and wherever we go. And if we go to Judea and Samaria and the outermost places of the earth, we're to act in such a way that will be different, set apart, Kodesh, holy, uh, from the people that are there. And that's what will attract the people to the Lord, not so much the way we tend to do that. So as we can continue with some of this stuff, remember, well, you may not remember if you weren't here, last week we sort of ended up with, um, we were talking about who's your neighbor. And the Pharisee, the lawyer from the Pharisees, actually asked uh, Yeshua that very question, who is your neighbor? And he related the story of, a uh, man was coming down from Jericho to Jerusalem and he was fell upon by robbers and stripped naked and beaten, half dead and awesome. And then the priest came by and walked on the other side of the road. And then the Levite came by and walked on the other side of the road. And then the Samaritan came by and, you know, patched him up, put him on his own animal, took him to the inn, paid for his care and all that stuff. So who was your neighbor? And of course, the Pharisees had to say, well, it was the guy that uh, took, took care of the injured man. And sometimes we don't... Uh, appreciate why the the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all that stuff didn't fix him up. Because you would think, and I've heard, I can't tell you how many sermons about this, you know, you would think that it would it, at the very least be their responsibility. But the reality is that they were probably on their way to work. They were coming down from Jericho to Jerusalem to go to the temple. The priest of the temple, the Levite in the temple. And man's law is such that if they had touched this bloody and beaten man, they would have been unclean. So they would have been unable to fulfill their duty in the temple. And that's the exact picture of how man's traditions and wisdom has destroyed the truth of God. And that's what... uh, Yeshua said in Mark 5 that there is only one thing in the world, in the universe, that can destroy the word of God, and that's the traditions of man. So that was the picture we saw. It's not to cast aspersions on the character of the priest or the Levite. It's just they, in their mind, had to make a decision. You know, do I, do I help this man and then become unclean and then I'm unable to fulfill my duty in the temple to all of the people? Or do I let this man be and I remain clean? And that's just a false argument. But that's the argument that we make for ourselves all the time. We let man's wisdom and world's wisdom and you know church orthodoxy and all this stuff get in the way of what the Lord would have us to do. And obviously the Lord would have had the priest help the man or the Levite help the man. And it fell to someone who was not terribly religious to help the man. And that is the perfect picture of of uh, misunderstanding the Torah, you know, misunderstanding the rules and the laws, because they're not that at all. You know, we saw Yeshua walking around uh, 
flaunting maybe is not the right word, but certainly not doing the things that the Pharisees, that man's religion would have him. He healed on the Sabbath and he ate you know, uh, grain walking through the fields. He did things that were prohibited by man's law. But he then explained that that's, you know, if, if your donkey falls in a pit on the Sabbath, do you not, you not pull it out? Of course you do. So he's making the case that these are not laws the way we say, you know, think, think of laws as being. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't really get it. So he was always at odds with those two groups and, of course, other groups of people. And we, at least with me, you read the Bible and you, you can see that. It's easy to see and you think to yourself, oh, yeah, of course. Well, those people, you know, they were, whatever you want to think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't falling, but we, you know, we know better. And I would suggest uh, we do the same thing. And that's basically the point of going through all these is to help us in our own mind be able to separate the traditions of man and the things of the world from the words of God and to be able to follow after the words of God unimpeded by the traditions of man and the orthodoxy of church and all that stuff. Then you can say all that and it's, I suggest it's a pretty hard thing to do because we've all been raised believing things and it's hard to set the baggage down that we have. And just look at what the Lord said and look at his heart. We're always thinking he's looking at our heart, which is true. But look at his heart and see what he would have us to do. And sometimes, oftentimes, that will conflict with our orthodoxy or what our uh, flannel graph Sunday school teacher has taught or just the things that we believe. So uh, the idea here is to is to seriously look at what the Lord said and to try to separate it from man's wisdom. And where I wanted to start this week is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. And this, of course, is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And it starts like this. You have heard it said, that, or you have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not an evil person, but whoever shall smite, and that's harapso, to slap, thee on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if any man will sue thee at law to take away thy coat, let him have your cloak also. And whoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, and give to him that sketcheth thee from that which would borrow of thee, turn thou turn not thou away you have heard it uh, you have heard that it has been said you shall love your neighbor and hate thy enemy but i say unto you love your enemies and bless them that curse you do good to them that hate you and pray for them which dis despitefully use you and persecute you that they may be the children of your father which is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good he sends rain on the just and the unjust for if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans do the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So that verse gets a significant amount of uh, abuse and bad airtime, I think. It's, it's, it's the classic 
a verse that people who don't know the Lord will use as a call for pacifism, or even Christians will, oh, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't, we should love our neighbors. We should love the Muslims, even though they're trying to kill us. We should, you know, and, and I would suggest that a lot of this is, is taken out of context. It's taken incorrectly because we don't understand what the Lord is really trying to say here. You know, if you think about this idea of, of Christians being pacifists, um, how would you explain when Peter went face to face with Paul or when Yeshua went face to face with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or when he flipped over the table of the money changers? I mean, there are enough examples in Scripture for us to see that it's, it's not intended for the people of God to be pacifists. I mean, certainly to be honest and fair and just and uh, merciful, but we're not necessarily to just lay down and let people walk over us. Uh, you know, and a lot of times the world, you know, and we've all seen this a bunch of times, somebody who's not a Christian does not know the Lord, has no interest in knowing the Lord, they're the, the first to point out, well, a Christian wouldn't do that. Well, how would they know what a Christian would or would not do? They have no interest in the things of the Lord. And we see this the world taking verses like this out of context to try to twist our behavior into something that it, it was never intended to be. No, nowhere in Scripture does it tell you to roll over. And uh, well, like John Stott says, we are not to be doormats. And that's what the world would have us to be. The world will tell you anytime you see a Christian or a Jew stand up for himself, and oh my gosh, the fireworks go off and it's terrible. And look at you Christians, you're doing this for simply defending yourself or standing up for the truth. And that's clearly not, not what the Bible would have you to say. Uh, Spurgeon said we are to be like anvils. And I thought that was, the more I think about it, the better it is. And you guys are um, antique people. Yeah, no, maybe, no, no. Okay, somebody around here is an antique guy. Um, it, but you're from Wisconsin, yeah? So you've seen all the old antique places. And I lived in Michigan for two unfortunate hellish years. And we had uh, antique places, you know, everywhere. And you can see these anvils that were made in the 1700s, 1800s. And they're anvils. You know exactly what they are. They're still animals. You can beat on that animal today. You know, and there are places that it's an animal. You can beat on it all you want. There are animals that are hundreds, thousands of years old that have worn out thousands of hammers over the generations. And the animal is still the animal. And that's what Spurgeon said. You know, Stott says we're not to be a doormat. Spurgeon says we are to be an animal. An animal to man's hammer. Because they will beat on us all day long. And they will beat on us constantly for thousands of years, perhaps. And the animal remains the same. It doesn't matter how much you beat on it. It'll get a little nicked, maybe, a little scratched. But I would see these old animals in Michigan that are hundreds and hundreds of years old that they're still using. And they look exactly like they used, you know, when the guy used them when they were new. And they do the same purpose. And generations of men have beat on those animals. And hundreds of hammers have broken. And it's still an animal. And that's who we're supposed to be. We're to stand strong and be solid like an anvil. You know, and people will beat on us. That's the purpose of the anvil, right? But it doesn't matter. It doesn't change who the anvil is. It doesn't really change what it looks like or what it does. 
It doesn't even change what it sounds like. It still has the same sound when you smack it with a hammer that it did 200 years ago. So I thought that was an apt analogy that we are to be like animals, you know, strong and solid. So we were talking about um, this, uh, this idea of retaliation and it, it doesn't have any place in justice. It's an eye for an eye, it's a tooth for a tooth. You're not supposed to be, uh, make gain or, or, or be, become rich because something has happened to you. You have the right to recover what you've lost but you don't have the right for reparations because, you know, 10 generations back, somebody had your great-grandfather as a slave. That it, it, It's an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. If you're designed to be, if you're thinking you're going to get rich because, you know, and so many people in our environment do that. Oh, if I could just, you know, get hit by a UPS truck instead of a, you know, an old lady, then I'd be rich. I'll have all this money. If I can spill hot coffee on my lap from McDonald's, then they'll give me millions of dollars. That is absolutely not biblical. That is the wrong idea. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The justice, the punishment should fit the crime. We're not to profit from our misfortune or anybody else's for that matter. So this, this little section that we just read in Matthew, um, you know, turn the other cheek, is, I believe, um, when, you, when you look at it, it it's sort of, it's a metaphor, a graphic metaphor of, of the Torah, because you can read that, and it will read one way. If you don't really think to look at it any deeper, it just reads, turn the other cheek, let people beat you up. You know, be a doormat, and that's absolutely not true. We discussed last week that we are not to do the revenge thing, because that's the Lord's deal. We can expect to recover what we've lost, but the Lord takes care of the rest of it. So, uh, this all sort of fits, to, it would fit together better if I had been able to do it in one sitting. But this idea of the Pharisees and the Sadducees from last week who were unable to do what God would have them to do because of man's tradition and because of the orthodoxy in the church, um, they have corrupted justice, basically. They're not doing the things that the Lord would have them to do. So Yeshua highlights this shame, I'm suggesting, or about to suggest, in, in this verse in Matthew from the quote-unquote Sermon on the Mount. So you have to think this through, though. It's, it's specific. It says... If someone smites you on the right cheek, well, that should give you a clue right there because why would it need to be that specific? And think about it, and you have to think about the culture. And, uh, you know, the right hand is the hand you would do things with because, of course, the left hand, you know, they didn't have Charmin back in those days, so the left hand had a, had a different purpose. And you didn't use your left hand for anything important. So Yeshua is saying, if someone smites you, and the, the Greek word is actually slaps you, on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Well, think that through. If you're facing another person and you can't use your left hand and you slap them on the right cheek, you are backhanding them, right? And that's a picture of uh, disdain. They're trying to humiliate you. They're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to humiliate you. 
And you've seen it in all the World War II movies where the Nazis take the gloves and they smack the guy, you know, with the glove. They're not trying to knock him out or hurt him or overpower him. They're, they're dissing him. They're trying to humiliate him. They've, they disdain him. And that's the picture that's being drawn. So Yeshua is saying, if someone backhands you to the right cheek, turn to him the other. So if you turn to him the other cheek, then he has to hit you with a forehand. And if he hits you with a forehand, that's a completely different deal. He's not trying to humiliate you anymore. He's not showing disdain for who you are. This is an equal <clears throat> fight. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's one man against another. He's elevated... He's eliminated the possibility that this guy is trying to humiliate you because of who you are, because you're a child of God and he's going to backhand you across the face. Now it's an even deal. Now it's, you're, not, you're no longer humiliated. It, 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 just, it, it sets the, the, whole, the whole thing differently. This guy who was trying to humiliate you is now can be seen as a coward or a bully uh, it just changes the dynamic of the whole thing. So if you if you look at the next one, he says if you're, you're taken to court and this guy's suing you for your uh, cloak or something coat, suing you for your coat, that tells you a couple things. One, it tells you that you're completely destitute because if you have nothing else that he can sue you for but your outer garment, then you have to wonder why the guy's taking you to court in the first place. You have nothing. But he does, and perhaps he's won the judgment. Whatever you did, you did, or you couldn't pay him, or whatever. So the court says, all right, you have to give him your coat. So this verse says, well, give him also your, your cloak, or whatever the other word is. Well, give him also your underwear, basically, is the deal. So this guy, who probably has much more than you do, is suing you for the only thing you have, your coat. And, and there is another uh, verse that we'll get to at some point that says you never sue a man for his outer garment. You don't even take it as a, as a pledge because he'll need it. If, if he comes to you and wants to borrow money and you seek a pledge and he gives you his outer garment, you can hold on to it till the evening, but then you have to give it back because he needs it to sleep, to stay warm. So it's not something that you can take, that you should take that morally you shouldn't take the guy's coat because it's all he has. So this guy is in court, loses the case to the guy. The judge says, you got to give him your coat. It's the only thing you own. So you give him the coat. You also strip off your underwear and give those to him. So it, again, it changes the dynamic. This guy was taking you to court because of legitimate grievance. And now all of a sudden you've humiliated him because he's made you, you're standing naked in front of the court. And everyone is shamed. And they're shamed because they're seeing this guy naked. And why is he naked? Because that guy, who has presumably much more than the guy who's now naked, has, has, has taken everything from him. And right, wrong, or indifferent, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't ever do that. So again, it just it changes the dynamic. It turns the table. It takes from this guy who may have had a worldly reason to backhand you or to sue you for your coat. And it's changed the dynamic into um, this guy is now the heel or the bully or the... Because no one should ever do that. <clears throat> then there's the, the, the one about if, if he asks you to take his deal a mile, take it too. The law was, as a Roman soldier, you could pick on anybody, any, any local Jew to carry your pack 
for a mile. You could only make him take it a mile. And the, the roadways, the, you know, the, the pathways in those days were actually marked like they are today. Maybe that's where we got the idea. So you could, the, the Roman soldier could make this guy take his pack, his weapons, his, his stuff, one mile. But the law said only one mile. And if he made you take it more, then he might face repercussions from his, uh, his people. So he says, if he asks you to take it one, take it two. So the picture is this. He's the Roman. He's in charge. He's telling you as the lowly child of God, the lowly Jew or Israelite, take my pack. It's your duty to take it. And you take it and you take off. And when the mile marker comes, you don't drop it. You keep going, which forces him into the spot where he has to chase after you and almost beg you to get it back. So he's gone from being, you know, this all-powerful Roman soldier to this guy who's now begging you to get his stuff back because if you don't give it back, he may get in trouble. So it, again, it just changes the dynamic of, uh, of, of everything. And, you know, back in, in Luke, when we were talking about the Good Samaritan, he approaches the naked guy. He didn't know if he was a you know, an Israelite or a Roman or whatever. I mean, you couldn't tell. The guy was naked and beaten, you know, and he treated him like a, like a child of God in need, which he was. And you've got the uh, religious teachers who should know better that were unable to do God's work because of the traditions of man. And so he's, he's lumping these things together to draw you a picture of how the word of God can change the dynamic of every event that you have and that's what it should do when you when you're filled with the word of god and and, you know we're reading that as the torah the instructions and the statutes and the directions and remember the word torah is from yara which means to throw a finger in the direction you should walk these are instructions these aren't laws like we think of a law if you break it you know you get fined or go to jail or whatever these are instructions on how to act so the instruction for the uh, Levites and the priest should have been take care of the guy first and we'll deal with the whole uncleanliness thing later. You know, because the uncleanliness thing was was sort of a uh, tradition of man. And God would have you work on his children first. He would have you do good for his children before he would have you obey the rules of man. And it's, uh, we, we went into the, the three things with, you know, the uh, back slap to the face and the, the cloak and the, and the, and the uh, backpack. And it, again, it's, it's the same sort of idea. It's changing the dynamic of the argument or of the event. And it's, it's elevating God's, well, and by elevating God's people, it's elevating God's word into a place of, uh, well, of certainly of some authority but in the place that he would want it to be. It says, But I say unto you, love your enemies and bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And so we, we you know, in, in our mind, and we've been taught this, and we, it's, I think it's, we've been taught incorrectly, we've been taught that we are to, to treat all people that way, that our enemies hate us, we're to bless them and and. All of that, but you can't read scripture, or you shouldn't read scripture, 
without putting it in context. You have to find out who they're talk who's talking, first of all. Who are they talking to? What's the culture, the situation? So who is talking would be Yeshua or would be the word of the Lord. They're talking to, of course, the Jews, but the whole context of this section, in fact, the context of the vast majority of the Bible, is to the believers, or not even to the believers, to the children of Israel. Now, there were some brethren, children of Israel, who believed and followed the Lord, and there were some who did not. But this is not, he's not saying, you know, these people that are trying to kill you, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, in our, our world, the Muslims, whoever it is that despite, that hates you, and is trying to kill you that are not of the people of God, he's not saying to treat them this way. He's saying to treat your brothers this way. And you're thinking, oh, my brothers don't, you know, don't despitefully or spitefully use me and what, whatever he said. And I would suggest that there's not a person in this room that hasn't been uh, abused at some point by some church or people in church or you know, it just happens. doesn't mean they're not your brother. It just means, and that's what we talked about last week, is when we were talking about this no revenge and, and uh, uh, no grudges and all that stuff. We have to understand that when we get to heaven, there are going to be people there that have abused us. There's going to be people there that we have abused, that we have done wrong to, that have done wrong to us. So how is it that you're going to be able to get by in the New Jerusalem or in heaven or, you know, however you want to phrase that, with people that have treated us poorly or that we have treated poorly. So they're making the case here that there cannot be any, uh, any judgment, any retribution, any, uh, any grudges. And there just can't be. And, you know, I could say that, and you can read that, and you have to think, well, how is that going to happen? And I suspect the only way it's going to happen is when we get there, we'll be so overwhelmed with the greatness and beauty of God. Whatever happened to us down here and whoever did it to us down here, it will no longer matter. We will together be able to worship. But he's saying to those people, there won't be any grudges. Don't worry about it. You know, you might as well get used to it, so you might as well start not having any grudges down here because when we get there, you're going to be so overwhelmed with the greatness of God, there won't be any time for it. But that's the context of who he's talking to. Those are the people of God. Those are the people of Israel. So within that discussion, he's talking about, um, it says, love your enemies. Well, I don't think he's talking about the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites. I think he's talking about the enemies within the people. And enemies is, again, in, in English is, is probably the wrong word. Those people who have mistreated us or who have uh, not taken us seriously or who have not heeded our warnings or whatever. There, there are people that, you know, we don't get along with. We don't get along with every, I guess. I mean, I, I don't. Maybe you guys do. But I don't get along with every single person who claims to love the Lord. And it doesn't mean I'm not thinking they're saved. It just means I don't necessarily get along with that guy. And sometimes they have done me wrong. And I'm sure sometimes I've done people wrong. But that's all 
going to be passed. But the point is, that's the group of people he's talking to, is us. He's not talking to the other people. Love your enemies. Love those people that have done you poorly. Bless them that curse you. There have been people at church that have said, you know, things about, certainly about us and perhaps about you. Um, Bless them. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That's easier to do if we understand the group of people he's talking about. And if he's talking about people in church or even of our own people. And again, we go back to who are these people Jesus was talking to? And the Greek word is, uh, is cleverly uh, translated as rabble. But these people that would follow Yeshua, the disciples followed him. Well, we know where they stand. And a lot of the people who believed in him, who believed him to be the Messiah, followed him. And we know where they stand. But a lot of other people followed him that didn't really believe, I mean, literally followed him, not necessarily followed him spiritually. They followed him to get free food or, you know, whatever the Bible says. But they were interested. They were curious. That's a completely different group of people than the Edomites who hated him, who hated his people, who sought to do them harm. These people were were tasked, uh, Amalek, uh, was tasked with killing the people of God, and they have maintained that uh, 5,000 years, 4,500 years later. They still are tasked with that. That's not who he's talking about. So love your enemies. Refer And again, you have to go back and read the context of all this stuff. The context is the people of Israel. Not necessarily all saved, not necessarily all good. Some are, some are good. But it's those people. Those are the people we are to, to uh, pray for and to love and to you know thirst and give them water and, and all of that stuff. So who is your enemy? The Greek word is onkolos, and it means rabble, multitude, uncircumcised. Um, but that's a different group of people than what we consider to be the enemy. So I guess a little discernment might be required, but I just, so much of how the, the words of Scripture are misapplied is because nobody's checking the context. Who are they talking to? Who's talking? And what exactly are they saying? And when it's translated in English, Sometimes you're at a huge disadvantage right there because the English words don't mean the same thing in our mind as they, as they did even in, in old English. But you go back to Hebrew, it means something different. But the biggest issue is, who are they talking to? Are they talking to the world? You know, occasionally there are Bible verses that do, but probably 95% of the verses, well, maybe 90%, are written to the people of God not to the general world. So we have to interpret them you know, in that light. Um, so if, if, if a Muslim, because they, are, they hate God, they can't get to God, so that means they hate us or the Jews. They hate the Jews first and then the Christians. If, if, if a Muslim is coming after me with a suicide vest or his beheading knife or whatever, do you think I'm supposed to stop and let him do that and pray for him the whole time? 
And we've been taught that, yeah, that should be our response. We should be that doormat. And I suggest that's not at all what he's saying. That's a completely different deal than when a guy at church is angry with you about anything, a business deal, the way you park, you know, what kind of shoes you have, I don't know. When a guy at church is angry with you or another Christian brother is angry with you at work over something, perhaps it's, you know, you did it. Perhaps he's deceived. It doesn't matter. Those are the people that we are supposed to pray for. Those are the people when they're cursing us we're supposed to bless. And you can see how that would change the dynamic of what these words mean if we understand them in the way that I believe they were, you know, they were given to understand. So one, uh, one commentator looking over this whole section called this creative engagement for redemption. Taking what we, we have been trained since we were in Sunday school to believe is the law. These are the rules that cannot be changed. We have to do things this way looking at them in the way we understand them in English and and completely devoid of any context or who they're talking to. If If we get the context, if we understand the meaning, if we understand the words, we're drawing, I believe, closer to the Lord's heart, we can disrupt the thinking of the world. We can, instead of being subjugated by this Roman soldier, all of a sudden he's chasing after you trying to get his pack back. Instead of losing your coat to this guy who shouldn't even be taken it in the first place, you've humiliated him in the face of the entire courtroom. And I would imagine people in the courtroom would you know, start a GoFundMe page for this poor guy so he could get some clothes back. I mean, you're changing the dynamic. It's creative engagement for redemption. We need to look at God's word the way God intended it to be looked at. He never intended the Pharisee and the, or I'm sorry, the priest and the Levite to walk past this guy who is beaten and naked. He never would have intended that. He intended them to use the gifts and the heart that he gave them to help their brother. But because of the orthodoxy of the church or the traditions of man, his law gets circumvented because of the understandings of our language versus the language it's written in because of our differences in culture, because 2,000 years have elapsed, we easily can, can misconstrue the heart of the Lord in a lot of these things. And if we, I think, if we look at and spend some time digging into what he really means, what his heart really is, that like this guy says, creates this creative engagement for redemption. It, it will disrupt the thinking of the world. You see how just understanding some of these things tips the balance towards the things of God. Now, I have shared with you, you know, anybody who's been here long enough to listen, um, that I believe this last dispensation, if you want to use that word, there's, there's one last thing coming before we get to the thousand years. And that's described in Malachi and Ezekiel and a couple other places. It's this thing where the hearts of the children turn to the fathers and the hearts of the children, or the hearts of the fathers turn to the children, where if the fathers are the Old Testament, say, Jews, 
and if children are New Testament Christians, the time will come, and it's in Malachi, it's referenced, this is the end times. These are the times of Elijah. This is, these are the last days. At the, you'll know that they're the last days because the hearts of the children will turn to the fathers. That's the Christians will suddenly develop a hunger for the things of the Old Testament, for the Torah, to know what it is Moses said. And the hearts of the fathers will turn to the children. The, the Jews, the people who embrace Moses, will suddenly turn to the Messiah and see who that is. That's the defining line when we get to the end time. And I can't help but think this concept of uh, changing the dynamic of how we understand and how we share the Word of God, if looking into it and trying to get uh, closer to God's heart in it, that's going to be a part of this. Because we've spent thousands, 2,000 years or 1,500 years letting the Catholic Church define what it is the Bible says. And for the most part, we bought into it. They've been able to change all the feast days, the word meanings, the day we worship. They've changed everything. But the time is coming when it's going to change back. And that's the picture you see in Ezekiel. You've got the two sticks. You know, one is Judah, one is Israel. He brings them together into one. Paul talks about the wild olive tree and the natural olive tree. And the wild olive branches get grafted into the natural one. It's not the other way around. We tend to think the Jews are going to suddenly become Christians. That's not the way Paul describes it. The, the wild olive branches, us, I would suggest, Israel, Christians, will be grafted into the natural tree, which is, you know, the Torah, the Moses, the law, Jews. So all of this stuff is going to happen. And I think if, if, if that's true... That this understanding of the way, you know, this changing of the dynamic of how we can understand the words of the Lord will factor in it in a huge way because we're going to have to change the way we look at things and we're going to have to change the way that we act. So, all right, let me, let me just go on here. Matthew says in verse 43, we just, we just read this. Uh, I don't know that you have this. <coughs> you have heard it. Uh, you have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But that's not what it said in Leviticus. Leviticus says, Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It doesn't say, Love, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But that's the way it was understood. And this idea of adding and subtracting to the word of God is, uh, is nothing new. Obviously, Yeshua was dealing with it when he was here. It doesn't say anything about hating your enemy. But that's how it was understood. If we love our neighbor, then we must hate our enemy. That's not true. The Lord is not commenting one way or the other about Edom and Moab and Ammon and all these other people who are out to get you. He's not saying love them. He's not saying don't. He didn't even mention them. He's talking about the people of Israel, the people of the country, your brothers. The people that were moving through the desert, the people went into the promised land. Certainly they had disagreements. They had a lot of disagreements. But they were one people and the people of God. And God is saying, look, you need to, as a group of people, uh, treat, treat each of yourselves better. better. You, you know, don't harbor these grudges and these groups and these cliques. It doesn't say anything about the outside world. That, you know, that will come later. Jesus said, I am the Lord. Love, love, what did he say? He says, you shall love your neighbor. I am the Lord. 
Well, that's kind of, you know, we read, I am the Lord, and I, I don't know, I, I never really thought too much about it. Of course, he's the Lord. But I think if you think about, I am the Lord, he's telling you something. He's telling you to emulate him, not hate your enemies, because that's what the world says, or not hate your enemies, because that's what uh, seems logical. He's saying, love your neighbor as yourselves. I am the Lord. Be like me. Emulate me. Do the things that I do. Yeshua ends chapter 5, the, the section we read in Matthew, by saying, be, be therefore perfect, which means complete or whole, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And again, we, we read that, and we can't be perfect like God. In English, we can't be perfect like God. But that's not the word in Hebrew. It means complete. It means perfect. It means understand these things. It means do those things. It doesn't mean, you know, get an A plus and a gold star in every single thing. It means understand the heart of the Lord and live that way. Be perfect because I am perfect. Not because you have to be. Not because the law says you have to be. Not because there's some punishment attached if you don't. You should choose to be that way. We should choose to be that way. Because he is that way. And we're told to emulate him. So, um, you know, the, the idea, or one of the many ideas here is, uh, true wisdom is never going to come from man's laws, or man's rules, or man's accounting. Man's accounting got the, the, the priest and the Levite all twisted up so they couldn't even do God's work and help this guy. That's where man's wisdom gets you. But it's, it's what we tend to embrace. We like to have rules. We like to have you know, somebody telling us what to do and how to dress and what to say. And It's common nature, I guess, human nature, to, to want that stuff. It's harder to live a life following God's words because there's a lot of flexibility there. And that's, again, what changes the dynamic. First uh, Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 14. It says, As obedient children, not fastening, fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which is called you holy, so ye be holy, or set apart, in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Or if you want to say, be different than the world because I am different than the world. Um, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts of your ignorance. Well, what are those four? You know, we read that former lusts and we tend to think uh, these are bad things. You know, it's lust. It's, it's a terrible thing. We've been, you know, watching the wrong stuff and doing the wrong stuff. And that's not the picture at all. The former lusts are just the things that we used to believe. And I don't know anybody in this room that can say, we still believe the things we used to believe before we found the Lord. And he's, Peter is just is, is adding to that. Don't believe the things that the churches have taught you, that your professors have taught you, that your flannel graph Sunday school teacher has taught you. Don't believe any of that. Those are the former lusts unless... It lines up with the Word of God. And you have to know the Word of God to determine if it lines up or not. And again, this is all in the context 
uh, of the people of Israel, not of the world. And if, if you're going to superimpose all these verses on the world, we come up with all these weird ideas like, you know, we're supposed to just lay down and be a doormat and we, we can't defend ourselves and, you know, and all of that stuff. But that's not true. Um, so if you were to do this, if you were to be able to separate the traditions of man from the actual words and meaning of God, and if you were to put those things in your heart and live those ways and, you know, forgive your brothers for their trespasses, knowing that we're going to be with them in the new Jerusalem. And, and if you can picture that, picture the person who believes themselves to be a Christian, probably a church member or something, in your own life that has done you the most harm. You know, picture that person. And then think to yourself, what's that going to be like when I get to heaven and they get to heaven and we pass on Main Street? How is that going to play out? And I suggest you know how it's going to play out. It'll be fine because you'll be so overwhelmed with the goodness of God, whatever petty thing happened down here isn't going to matter. So if it's not going to matter when we get there, why should it matter now? Don't let it get you now. Be able to do what the Lord asks you to do and forgive your brethren. It does not mean put your guard down and forgive, you know, these people who are beheading people on the beaches or, you know, whatever they're doing. It has nothing to do with that. That's a completely separate discussion. He's only talking about your brothers and your sisters. And even the people referred to as rabble who may not yet be your brothers and sisters, but who are interested, who followed uh, Jesus into the desert, who wanted to see what was going on, who were the children of Israel, the children of God, maybe not on board yet. Those are still your brothers, though. <coughs> They're different than this group of Egyptians or Edomites or you know people that are out to get you. So once we can do that, if, if we can get our heart to line up more with the true words of the Lord, if we can understand the true words of the Lord and then apply them, First uh, Peter chapter 2 tells you what that will look like. Starting in verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, amen to that, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Do you get that? That's us. That's the Gentiles. We, had, we were never the people of Israel, but we've been made the people of Israel. Our hearts have changed to follow after the God of Israel. And there, the, the time is going to come in these days of Elijah when Israel will embrace us and we will embrace Israel. And that's an awesome thing. But again, that it, it never says anything in here about the rest of the world. That is a different discussion for a different time. So the context of First and Second Peter, of course, are the end times. So everything he's saying and everything that he's referring to is should be viewed or heard or understand, understood through the lens of what's going to happen at the end, and that is what's going to happen. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that will show forth the praises of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That's us. 
in which times past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. That's us. If we are able to do, to, to wrap our mind and heart around the things of the Lord. Okay, so we began last week in Leviticus 19.18, which you don't need to go to. Leviticus chapter 19.19, which obviously is an extension of 18, says this. You shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let the cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow the field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment of mingled linen and woolen come upon thee. And so in all the things we're talking about, that seems kind of weird to be talking about. And what difference does it make? Why can't you let the Angus and the, I don't know what a different kind of cattle is, you know. Hereford. Okay, Angus and Hereford. You don't want them in the same field, apparently. I don't know what the deal is. But again, we read that and we think, oh my gosh, my shirt is a... Is a cotton poly blend. It's a cotton poly blend. Oh no! You know, well, that's not really what he's talking about here. He's saying we shall not mingle the things of the Lord with the things of the world. We can't take the world's wisdom and mingle it with the things of God and expect it to come out well. Because he's, this, all of this stuff we talked about for the last two weeks comes down to right here. He says, don't mingle these things. And we do every day. It is so hard to separate the things of the world from the things of the Lord because we've never been taught it. We've never been encouraged to look into it. We've never been encouraged to find out what it really said. We're happy believing what... I mean, for crying out loud, the Methodist Church, Pastor Sid, great guy. He's either passed or is about to pass. He passed, yes? Okay, well, he's very sick. Very nice guy. Very sweet guy. So they're looking for a new... And it's a Methodist Church, okay? I mean, you know, they're not right on the beam anyway. So the... Either the one they've picked or the one that's, you know, in the upper echelon. She's a lesbian. The bishop. The bishop. Okay. The bishop, A, is a girl. B, is a lesbian. And she's deciding all these things for the people of God. Come on. And now that might seem like an extreme example. And a lot of people are leaving, of course. Because even Methodists have to draw the line somewhere. But the point is, every one of us fights these things. You know, the, the world has crept in in ways, I mean, we don't even know. We can't even picture in our own lives the things that the world has twisted. The only anchor we could possibly get is to read the word and try to discern what it's saying with prayer. And, and certainly, you know, there, there are options available to us today. You know, we, we can look up words. We have more stuff. I mean, I can do more things in five minutes in my office than the guys who translated the, the King James Bible in 40 years, the whole group of them. It's amazing. And that's what Daniel was talking about, I believe, when he said, you know, these things, intelligence, knowledge will increase as we get closer to the end time. And one of those things is that, look, we all have the opportunity, if you choose to use it, to learn anything you want to learn about any word, any idea, any concept in Scripture. And hopefully you have the discernment to throw up the chaff and retain the good stuff. And why is that important? Daniel said that's what was going to happen just before the end came. Malachi said that's what's going to happen in the times of Elijah, just before the end came. Ezekiel 35, the two sticks, just before the end came. 
Paul and his olive trees. These are pictures of what's going to happen just before the end. So my encouragement is always uh, is to you know is to take advantage of these things because it could, it could it could be next month. It could be a hundred years. The Jews think we're in fifty seven eighty. I think. So they're 220 years. So according to their you know, catalog, it would be 220 years before the end comes. And I'm hoping there was a math error there. But if not, it could be. Or it could be next week. I don't know. But the, the point is not when. It's God's giving you an opportunity now, before that day comes, to actually use the, the things that Daniel was talking about, these knowledge that will increase, these things that will happen, Use those things to our benefit, to draw closer to God and, and to be uh, something useful for Him. So it, it's interesting in this, this uh, verse I just read, keep my statutes. Okay, we get that all the time. Uh, it's the word, I guess. It's called an appointment of time or distance. So we read, keep my statutes and think, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to keep the law. Well, that is true. You, you're supposed to keep the Torah. But this, the word is actually something different than that. It means, um, you know, it's this, it's this idea of an appointment of time or distance. And then the, the cattle of diverse kind is uh, kiliam, and it means a separation or a, like a two-cell prison. This idea of mixing uh, the world's wisdom and God's wisdom or the world's words and God's words is like a prison. It's like a two-cell prison. You're putting yourself, we're all putting ourselves in a place that we don't want to be. We would not willingly go there. Why do we allow ourselves to go there? Why do we mix the, the wisdom of the world with the truth of God? And, you know, we let the lesbian bishop tell us what the Bible says. I mean, come on. What are you going to do when you get to heaven and you're standing in front of the, the Bema seat and the Lord's right there and he's going to ask you a question and you're going to say, oh, my lesbian bishop told me that. Well, that's not going to fly. He's talking to you personally, to each of us personally. And I'm not saying that, you know, you have to get an 89 on the test to, to get through the door. All I'm saying is, uh, why wouldn't you want to have the right answer? Why wouldn't you want to know those things? Okay, so we're about out of time. So that's, that's it. You look at the things of the world today, you watch the news for more than five minutes and you can't help but be disgusted by the lie. I mean, they're obvious lies. There are so many things that are just, they don't even pretend that they're not lying anymore. They just tell you this crap and it's crap. It's just, it's a lie. And they're so sure that a, a number, enough, people will just go, oh, okay. He said it. It must be right. Well, that's how the enemy has worked since the garden. He was there talking to Eve, distorting the things that the Lord, oh, you, you shall not really die. He didn't say that. Well, he did say that. And she did die, but not physically. So was he right? Was he wrong? Yeah. But that, it's, I mean, it still works that way. That's Isaiah 46.10. You know, these things that happened in the beginning will show us what's going to happen at the end. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians. Look at the Exodus generation, see what happened to them, because it's going to happen to us. You know, there's so many 
warnings and flags and instructions for us if we want to see them, and they all lead the same place, to find out what it is the Lord actually said and to do them. It's pretty simple. I mean, it's not simple, but it's a simple concept. Just let's not have the world get into our heart and tell us what the Lord actually said. So there you go. That's pretty much it for today. Oh, let me, one more thing, one more thing, and I use this all the time. September 2nd, 1858. You can fool some of the people all the time, all the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. And we know who said that, right? I always thought it was Barnum and Bailey. Hitler? Abraham Lincoln. Oh. Yeah, Hitler did say similar things, but that was not for another hundred years. Okay, so there you go. That's all we have tonight.